Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. So right now, DJ Demers is a stand-up comedian. Uh, he was a guest on Conan O'Brien's show three times. He did a set that blew up on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. He tours all around Canada and the U.S. But before all that, DJ was a kid with a hearing aid working at a used sporting goods store in Kitchener-Waterloo, Ontario. And now he's created a new sitcom loosely based on his experience there. It's called One More Time. And listen, it's a feel-good show. And that feel-goodiness is very intentional and meaningful to DJ. But it's also a show that's not afraid to show the more challenging parts of being a hard-of-hearing person moving through this world. If you want to get in touch with the show, q at cbc.ca is the best way to do that. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. DJ Demers joined me in our studio to talk all about it. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, uh, nice to have you here. What is this used sports store you worked at in Kitchener-Waterloo? It was Play It Again Sports on okay. uh, Wilson Avenue in Kitchener. Yeah, it was, I worked there when I was a teenager for a few years. Didn't know that 20 years later I would write a show kind of loosely based on my time there, but it was kind of always bouncing around in my head. And then, yeah, I wrote this show a couple years ago when I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to write about, and that kind of came to me as like a simpler times you know i romanticized it in my head so i made that the setting how old were you when you were working there i think i was 15 when i started there if yeah like three years 15 to 18 maybe why play it against sports it was a job like it was my first job and it was retail so i think uh my mom probably pushed me into a retail setting because you have to talk to people a lot and and i wear hearing aids so i feel like for her, it might have been a way to like make sure I didn't retreat within a shell, you know, and like yeah. make sure I was able to talk to people and and not be shy and 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 those sorts of things. I yeah. never thought about that. One of the things you have to be um, cognizant of if you have a kid who wears hearing aids is that they might start of like hide themselves away and not interact with people and try, yeah. and try to avoid people. And you know, I never even in my mind, I'm like that would never happen to me because I'm a pretty outgoing guy. But the pandemic, everybody had a mask on and I couldn't hear them. And I found myself retreating, like very, very, um, it was visceral. Like I was like, I could feel if I had to go out, I was like, I do not want to not hear people all day long. So yeah, that was kind of the first time in my life where I was like, oh yeah, I could see how easily that could happen without the right support system. I never thought about that with the uh, until I saw your bit about it. But the, with, the, um, with the masks, of course, you wouldn't be able to lip read with masks on. Yeah, it was brutal. It was really brutal, actually, because another thing is you can't even be friendly to people because you're so stuck on the first level of a conversation just trying to understand them that you can't, like, throw in a little joke. You can't ask how they're doing. You're, you're so overtaken by your nervousness, and uh, it was hard, yeah. I'm not going to ask you to do one of your bits on, on the show, but, like, one of my favorite bits from that from that Fallon set I saw you do was I think it was, like, you're standing at a in front of a bank teller. Yeah, yeah. And they have the mask on. Yeah, I'll just do the bit. Go on, I got yeah, no go problem. On, do the bit. Yeah, that's it. good. Come on. But yeah, it's just about how, uh, yeah, when they have the mask on, it's hard enough. But then when they have the mask and they're behind the plexiglass, 
I'm just staring at him for 10 seconds before I'm finally just like, have you started talking yet? I'm like, this is really important. Can you just write it on a piece of paper and put it up against a glass like a reverse robbery situation? Yeah. I, lo- I, I love the reverse robbery situation part of that joke. Uh, um, so let's let's back up here. So it's in the pandemic. You're feeling a bit isolated. You're feeling a bit far away from everybody. You're starting to retreat a little bit. And it comes to you to write a sitcom. Yeah, I, well, I always wanted to write a sitcom. I've been a stand-up now for since 2009. And, you know, I had a few little things along the way, like after I did Conan for the first time, uh, a couple production companies were like, hey, we'd love to do something with you. Do you have any TV shows you've written or anything? And I was always like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got tons. And <laughs> I never did. I never wrote anything. And I'd leave those meetings and I'd be like, I just have to finish a couple little paragraphs and then I'll send it to you. They never heard from me again. So finally, <laughs> during the pandemic, I was like, if I don't write it now, because everything was on hold stand-up wise, I was like, if I don't write it now, then I'm just really a lazy piece of crap and I have no excuses. So, um, so I wrote it. And uh, I wrote it living in L.A. and there were protests and there was, you know, political stuff going on in the pandemic. So it was a darker kind of feeling period, to say the least. So I I wanted to write something. It's funny because I I had the conscious thought I wanted to write something that felt like Canadiana a little bit and harken back to kind of simpler times in my mind. And I specifically said I want something that I think CBC would like. And it's crazy. Like, I don't know if I ever really believed in manifestation, but CBC liked it. And I was like, wow, that worked. That's crazy. That's how I was grown in a lab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the people at the lab said, we want something CBC would like. Yeah. And then they they, you know, they nailed it. Yeah. They had a little beard and a plaid shirt and out I, out I came. Hold on. What, what, what do you mean? What, <laughs> what do you mean by Cana- uh, Canadiana and, a, and a, a harken back to a simpler time? Well, Canadiana can mean a lot of things to different people. Obviously, Canada is a big country. But for me, you know, working in in played against sports when I was young, teenager, I was still playing hockey a little bit. I remember the winters had more snow than they do now. Like all these little things that the rose colored glasses that I look back on that time with. uh, It's romanticized. There were still problems and all that. But um, for me, I just wanted to write something. There's used sporting goods store in America, stories in America too, but they're not going to have as many hockey skates, let's say. They're not, yeah. There's going to be a bit of a different feeling. So um, when I say Canadiana, I guess it's my own specific yeah. vision of what that means. And I, yeah. think, I think the workplace comedy is sort of in itself a very comforting sort of style of sitcom, right? Agreed. Yeah, it's really nice knowing like within these four walls, you're going to see the same characters you see every week and... Yeah, if if somebody, it kind of sounds like an insult, but if somebody said, like, oh, I just love listening to your show in the background while I'm doing the dishes, I would be like, that's nice. Thank you. It yeah. wouldn't hurt me at all. No, that's that's yeah. the, that's the best sort of, that's the kind of compliment I get, and it's the greatest feeling <laughs> in the entire world. I accidentally listen to your show oh, that's nice. while, I'm shovel, while I'm shoveling out my garden, and I'm like, well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's great. Tell me a little bit about uh, your character, who's also DJ, who also works at a sporting goods store. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a lot in common with you? Yeah, he's um, he's probably a bit, uh, I was going to say he's a bit dumber than me, but I don't even know if that's true. I think we're probably <laughs> equally dumb. Uh, he's a bit more optimistic and naive than me, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he really believes in the power of community and, and uh, you know, a used sporting goods store. It's obviously not the most profitable enterprise, but he thinks what's going to help the store survive is that feeling of community, that people are going to come in and know that the employees care about them. So DJ takes that very seriously. Um, and yeah, he's, uh, 
he he believes in people. That's kind of the main thing. So that that notion and that belief of his is is challenged throughout this season. And he finds himself surrounded by some 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 coworkers. Oh man, the co yeah, he finds himself by very uh, an eclectic mix of. Uh, I'm going to say ragtag because I think that's the only <laughs> adjective you can use. And maybe oddball, either oddball or ragtag. Misfits, for sure. Um, but the whole cast is amazing. Like Jerry Hall, who is on 22 Minutes, who I'm a big fan of. Dan Byrne, I'm a, I'm a big fan of everybody. Uh, Dayton Sinkaya, Elise Bauman. We got this, um, this kid. There's no other word I can use for it. He's 15 years old. No way. Who plays the teenager in the show, yeah. Sharon Sathya Seelan. And he is... He's a real teenager. Like, that's what we really wanted. We wanted that real teenage energy, and he's, he's fantastic. How'd you find him? He was like an 11th hour type thing. We were having a hard time casting his role. And um, our casting agent, Larissa Mayer, she, I think she was at some showcase. I'm not sure what it was. But it was something with, like, high school kids. And he came up to her and talked to her, and, and she right away was like, I know what you'd be great for. And she sent his tape along to her. He did a self-tape audition. And for some reason, she just thought he would be great. And we watched it, and we're like, yeah, you're absolutely right. He's never acted before? Never acted. Like, I think he he sang a lot. We found some YouTube clips <laughs> of him singing and stuff. Beautiful voice, by the okay, way, great. dancing. Okay. Like traditional kind of like Tamil dancing. Okay. He's, um, yeah, so I think he's got, a, he's got a heart for, a passion for it. But I don't know if he ever, if he did ever act. No, this is his first job ever. First ever job. Yeah. This is his played against sports. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Slightly different, but yeah. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Coming up, more of my conversation with the stand-up comic DJ Demers. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. My, my guest is DJ Demers. His uh, new show is called One More Time. It's out on CBC Gem today. Like I said to you, I first found out about you uh, when I was, well, I think I heard your name in sort of Canadian comedy circles and maybe some mutual friends. And then I watched your Fallon set when it happened. That was a while ago now, right? It was two summers ago, yeah. And um, it was funny. And it was funny right out of the gate. Um, uh, you, you uh, right, off, right off the bat, you kind of acknowledge the hearing aids. You sort of acknowledge the, the, heart, the heart of hearing. Was that always a part of your stand-up? Like, was that something you always uh, addressed kind of right off the bat when you got up on stage, when you started doing stand-up? No. I, I've, I've kind of gone back and forth on it. Sometimes, sometimes just as a rebellious move in my mind, I would do a full hour set without ever talking about them. Really? Just to be like, I don't have... To like prove it to myself that I don't have to talk about them. You'd be like, there's this expectation that I get up and talk about my experience and or my life, and to, to not do that is a bit of an F you to the expectation of it. 
Yeah, and it's also to make sure I don't fall on, fall into this trap of being scared to do it, where, like, it's not even the audience putting this expectation on me. It's me putting these, this box around myself for no reason. Like, I was actually just in Washington, D.C. this past weekend performing at a club there, and I was doing all this material I've been doing lately, which is a lot about uh, the IVF process my wife and I had to go on to create our son. And uh, create our son, that sounds like he... Well, he was made in the lab, essentially. But, he, he and I uh, both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, we forgot to give him the beard, though. I don't know if he's ever going to be able to work at CBC. But, uh, but um, I was like 40 minutes into this hour set, and it just like wasn't going necessarily as well as I wanted. Yeah. And I was just like, what's going on? Like, I stopped the show a little bit. I was like, what's going on? And then I was like, wait a second, how many... Because I saw somebody in the front row had hearing aids, and I was like, how many of you are here... How many of you here have some sort of hearing loss? Like, most of the room started clapping. And I'm like, oh, they all want the hearing aid jokes. They were polite, but like... They wanted, they came for the hearing stuff. And that's an interesting thing I have to navigate where it's like, from then on, I just gave up on what I was going to do in the next half hour. I did hearing aid stuff because I'm, I'm a man of the people too. You know what I mean? I'm not like, I'm an artist, quote unquote, but I'm like, I also want people to have a good time when they come to my show. So I adapted. I said, oh, okay, I'll give you guys the hearing stuff. But um, it's an interesting thing for me. It's like, it's internal and external in terms of like what people expect of me. But to answer your question, I don't mind talking about the hearing stuff on stage and, and I, I love it actually, but I don't necessarily feel the need to always like start with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that must have been, was any part of that meaningful to get up on stage in, in DC and start realizing, hey, this isn't going very, very well and to realize that, hey, everyone, most people in this room have a hearing aid. But isn't, isn't, isn't that um, meaningful to you that like they came out to see you know, these folks who probably don't get to see a lot of comedians uh, who wear hearing aids it must have been pretty meaningful that they came out to see you the, yeah it was actually really impactful the, there was a couple sitting to the the right of the stage and they both had um, they had two kids who both had hearing loss one had a cochlear implant and the other had hearing aids they were seven and nine and during the show while I was because I had big crowd work too while I was talking to them the dad started crying while he was talking to me and saying they've watched me since I did Conan the first time which was the 2014 um oh no sorry second time 2017 because they said their nine-year-old was like three or something at the time and so they've like from the beginning because parents are really worried when their kids have hearing loss they don't know how to navigate it my parents felt the same way when they found out i had hearing issues uh so they said watching me was like let them know that their kids were going to be okay oh man i don't think about that a lot just because i feel like it would weigh me down if I was always thinking of myself as an inspiration or something. Yeah. I'm just trying to be funny. But uh, in that moment, yeah, it was really meaningful because it was like, oh, like my hearing loss means something to you yeah. and, and your journey as parents with, with your children. So that's a, a responsibility that I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around. It's not all fun and games, though. She said something to me recently that shook me, you know, rocked me to my very core. She said, when we go to sleep at night, when you take out your hearing aids, I feel alone. I feel very alone. And I was like, whoa, alone? Baby, no, you're not alone. Remember that. I'm right there beside you. And if anything happens in the middle of the night, anything at all, I need you to save me. In terms of being, being funny, um, alone, I wanted to ask about in the Fallon set, you had an interpreter on, on stage with you. Yeah. And she was, she was on stage with you and she was in the corner of the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, Comic timing-wise, given that timing is so important for comedy, do you have to have a conversation with her about like where the punchlines are going to land or where the jokes are going to land? I 
don't necessarily have to have a conversation. And it's interesting because I don't sign. So I don't even know. She could not even be saying what I'm saying. Because <laughs> yeah, you don't sign. She could be making fun of me the whole time. I have no <laughs> idea. But the one thing I have found is comedians, um, sorry, interpreters, some of them don't have a comedic sensibility necessarily. So uh, you do have to find an interpreter who enjoys comedy yeah. and who does understand your cadence. The yeah. best interpreters will, if they have a really slow, dry comedian, they'll interpret in a slower, kind of drier way. And then a more animated one, they'll match that. That's part of the language of, of interpreting. So uh, we did like three warm-up sets the night before Fallon at the Comedy Cellar oh, in New cool, York. Cool. So she ran around to each room with me, and that was her first time doing the five minutes with me. So she said she was really, by the end of that night, was really able to lock in exactly, because she didn't want to step on my jokes either. With If there was a deaf person who could also hear a little bit, she wanted to make sure she wasn't giving away the punchline. She doesn't before. want to beat you to your punchlines. Yeah, oh, exactly. So yeah, that. there is an art to it that yeah. um, that I really appreciate when interpreters can do it well. I'm I'm happy to hear you say in the when you were coming up with the idea of a workplace comedy, you said like I wanted something just really kind of comforting, something kind of Canadiana, something kind of nostalgic, um, and and especially you know in the midst of the pandemic when there was all this turmoil around you. Um, I was talking to someone the other day, and this is anecdotal, so you know I'm not a, I'm not a journalist here. Uh, I was told that like during times of like great world unrest, and I think we're certainly going through one right now, a lot of like comforting shows do better than ever, you know, like sitcoms, like baking shows, game shows. People want that kind of um, comfort, I guess. Mm -hmm. All that to say, like, have you given any thought to like what you want folks to take from the show when they watch it? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's pretty simple. I really want them to laugh hard for the entire time. And if you want to say escape and all and that kind of thing, sure. Um, But I really, I want 100% of the people who watch it to feel good. I know that sounds like a lofty goal and you might say, well, not everybody's going to love it. And that's true. But I mean, like every joke for me, I don't want it to be like, well, 95% of people like that and 5% of people were offended or um, not to say I don't want to do edgy humor or anything like that. I'm just saying like, I really, I want, when you watch the show, I think the sense of comfort comes from, and I find this in stand-up too, the comfort comes from, like if I do an hour set, but at, at like the half hour mark, there was one joke that made you feel a certain way you can't trust me for the rest of the set or it's going to take time for me to rebuild that trust with you. So all it takes is one joke that makes you feel not right or Mm -hmm. not good. So for me, like I want all the jokes to feel really good. So that sense of home that we described earlier, that, that comfort you feel is never like punctured. Like you, you're, you're in that nice warm cocoon of laughs for the the full 22 minutes or whatever it is. Well, I think, I think it's going to, I think it's going to do really well just like that. DJ, uh, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much, Tom. I love everything DJ said there. I mean, I'm still thinking about how his mom, you know, had the, had the foresight to think, you know, I'm going to make my kid who's hard of hearing go into retail to make sure that he doesn't retreat. I still, I love that moment. DJ Demers is my guest. His new TV show, One More Time, is out now on CBC Channel. That's it for us. The other conversation we have up today is with, and my God, it's not, not every day you get handed a line like this. It's a conversation with Jeff McFetridge, who's been called the most famous Canadian artist you've never heard of. His work has shown up on Nike and Uniqlo and Apple and big budget Oscar winning Hollywood movies. But he's always kept a bit of a mystery around him. So you're going to hear a rare interview with Jeff McFetridge. Go check that out on the podcast feed. We'll see you soon. Later on.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.